Welcome to SolkanaCast, two broads talking broadly about health, the physical, the emotional, the nitty-gritty, and the fun. Real thoughts on real health. The information provided within this podcast is not designed to and does not provide medical advice, professional diagnosis, opinion, treatment, or services to you or any other individual and is intended for general information for educational purposes only. Hey everybody, welcome to SoconaCast episode 20, a special episode where we have a special guest and we're having a special conversation. I'm just going to overuse the word special as much as I can. Today we're going to be talking about uh, racial justice and see where that leads us. We might be talking about lots of other things, but most importantly, I'm here, your host Hannah Whitevin, and your other host, Lucia Holly, is also here. That's me. <laughs> and we have a special guest um, and he's here to introduce himself. I'll do a, a drum roll. Hey everybody, it's Filiberto Nolasco Gomez. Hi, welcome. <laughs> Thanks, pal. Um, let's start with a little bit about you. Okay. So, tell me. Let's start with now, and then maybe we'll go back and come forward. All right. What kind of work do you do in your in your work life? In my, so, there's a lot of different things I do, but uh, my paid job is as a researcher with SEIU, uh, organizing faculty at the University of Minnesota. I also do a lot of work as an expert witness for Guatemalans seeking political asylum. So, I get to uh, explain to the judge the country conditions for Guatemala and also explain some of the dynamics that the clients bring up about why they left Guatemala and why they feel uh, they would be killed if they were to go back. And I do some journalism, and I have my own podcast, too. That's right. You should say what it is. So I can plug it? Is that yeah, okay? Plug, it, <laughs> plug that. Uh, it's on SoundCloud because I hate iTunes, and it's called <laughs> El Huateque, H-U-A-T-E-Q-U-E. Nice. And we'll, we'll link to it, too. Oh, show thanks. Yeah. All right. We'll pop each other up. Yeah. That's good. That's a good thing. Yeah. Um, so let me ask about specifically about your role as an expert witness like how did you become an expert in in that area yeah and it's like a loaded term right to say you're an expert it's like not yeah. great but it's what the court uses and what yeah. i have to use because like maybe the people that you're specifically there for are more of an expert yeah my clients <laughs> know plenty about what <laughs> for sure right but like but you know there's a certain well okay so i was a phd student in contemporary Guatemalan history for about seven years and I got an email in the Guatemala uh, like Scholars Network asking for someone that knew about gender violence or gang violence or some other type of dynamic that's currently happening in Guatemala. And uh, I just responded to the email. And it turns out the Guatemala Scholars Network is mostly archaeologists. Like, I'm one of the few contemporary historians on Guatemala. So I've had a lot of work since then. Hmm. And I'm very popular because I don't charge thousands of dollars. Oh. <laughs> well, maybe you should. Yeah. <laughs> no, I can't. I mean, they're all like poor indigenous Guatemalan Oh, you folks, mean you know? for, to be an expert witness? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. The clients, that's what they, they pay me or I they don't, see. I guess, most of the cases I don't get paid because I'm not going to say no to a case that I think has some founding. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah because it will, like, m- some of what you say might determine whether or not they get to stay, the person gets to stay here. Like, stay alive. Like, it's, yeah. it's that specific. Yeah. Like, if they get sent back, they will be killed. Mm. You wow. know? And so when I say that, I'm not exaggerating in my yeah. affidavits and my go to court. Yeah. So, but that's that's why that's how I started doing it was because of my PhD work and my and there's only like four or five historians in the United States that look at contemporary Guatemala. There's other sociologists or anthropologists, but there's not many of us here. So, if they yeah. find me special, yeah. So yeah, it'd be really hard to turn down a case then because you yeah. would feel like the consequences would be very bad for that person. Yeah. 
and I go through the affidavits, mm. and I've heard what they say, and I ask them questions sometimes. I know it's bad. Yeah. And I go to Guatemala all the time. Yeah. And did you live there for a while? Yeah. Over, like, a six-year period, I probably lived there for about a year. And the first time I was there was in 2004 for six months. And uh, the largely why I, I saw it, I was there before I was doing my doctoral work, looking at a community. So I was hanging out with this community that was uh, eventually massacred by the government. And so I made a documentary, a documentary about that massacre, and then that led a lot to the content with which I was researching mm -hmm. in the PhD program. Is that documentary available to be? Uh, yeah, but it <laughs> <laughs> I made it in like 2005 in a hostel. And okay. it, so we won't link to it. it kind of. I mean, you it's could. <laughs> you could, but it's just keep in mind I did it in 2005 without really knowing what I was doing. Okay. It's you know it, it conveys the information, but yeah. Yeah. Informational. I'm, just, I'm stressing out right now just talking <laughs> about it. We won't. We won't. It never happened. Yeah. <laughs> Learn about it another way. <laughs> Somehow, yeah. Good luck. <laughs> Is there a lot of other available information, like, specifically about the work that you do? Or are you, like, one of the people providing that information? What do you mean? Like, can people easily just, like, look up contemporary Guatemala, like, finding, like to find out what's yeah. going on? Or are you there, like, doing the groundwork and bringing it back? Yeah, I mean, I was I was with a buddy of mine in Guatemala last month, and she was very, like, stressed out because she was mm. like, I haven't researched enough, like, I haven't read enough books, like, I feel annoyed that I'm asking you for all this basic information. And I was like, well, Anna, like, I'm the only one that knows this. Like, there is no book that represents my thinking and my research. And so, no, not really. Okay. Yeah. It's hard to get information about Guatemala. Mm. Yeah. Do you ever feel like you're speaking into a vacuum then of, like, just talking to yourself yeah, about it? Yeah, because on the I have my website, Alateke, which hosts the podcast and some other writings that I do. And then I have the Facebook page. So, like, whenever I post anything about Guatemala, it just doesn't – there's no likes, there's no traffic. Mm. And it's really frustrating for me because I care so much about it. Yeah. Right. But, you know, people just don't know about Guatemala at all. Right. So – Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think if there, there would have been any time in, like, my school history where I would have learned – anything about Guatemala you would you would have heard about Rigoberta Menchu at some point maybe because oh, okay. she won a Nobel Peace Prize yeah hmm. but she's also a very contested figure in contemporary Guatemalan history mm -hmm. so it's not necessarily a good entry point either right yeah it's just me doing my thing <laughs> so I lecture <laughs> regularly and do different things yeah, to yeah bring information but sounds you know. like you should probably someday write a book Maybe. Yeah, <laughs> and then we can link to it. Yeah, <laughs> on the podcast. So, so many plug opportunities. Yes. Here. It's amazing. How did you originally come to being even interested in that kind of research? In Guatemala? Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, uh, I, so I tell this story a lot, so I, I apologize if it sounds like like if I'm describing it in one way, but like um, in, when I was an undergrad, I took a course on uh, the Church of the Poor in Latin America, which is essentially liberation theology and the gospel message of justice and how it framed radical movements in the 70s and 80s. And most of our content was about Guatemala because the professor at Scripps College, uh, Cindy Forster, was an expert on Guatemala. She's like one of the other experts in the country. And so um, I just got really, I got really uh, emotionally connected to these stories about massacres and mass violence. And I'm kind of obsessed about massacres generally. It's sort of one of the weird things that <laughs> I think a lot Seems about. Seems like a difficult thing to have in your mind all the time. Yeah, it is. It a little is. heavy. Yeah, but it's just kind of, I, like, I think it's changed a lot since then, but I think back then it was like, my feeling was you couldn't really understand human society without understanding it at its worst, which is a pretty 
funky place to be in for like a decade. And so now I think it's shifted over to now that I have a sense of what genocide, how genocide works, and at least in Guatemala, it's like, how do we figure out how to put people in the best positions to be successful mm. and not so much think about who we are at our worst? Oh, right. For myself. Okay. Yeah. It's like, just yeah, because it would be hard to continually think about like what went wrong and yeah. who's responsible. And how we recreate those things every day. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Versus like what can be done now and what's the best way to move forward. Yeah. That seems like kind of where we're all at at this moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm, by the way, a professional segue artist. So that was Is that what's happening? Yeah. I, I gave you a nice little, I guess, a nice little jewel to, to move it through. Yeah. Oh, structural problems yeah. related to oh. race and like Let me just hop mass on that violence. Segue oh, and wow. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, gendered violence that I work with. I mean, it's all, it's all there. All the pieces are there. Yeah. 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 So, th- we're specifically, we're recording today because last night at Solcana we had a racial justice workshop uh, with Autumn Brown from AORTA, which stands for Anti-Oppression Resource and Training Alliance. Um, and so she's part of a cooperative group that does these type of trainings, anti-oppression trainings, at different places across the country. Um, and she came to us yesterday and worked with us for like three hours mm-hmm. in the evening. Which, it did not feel like even scratching the surface, but mm. it was a good start to generating some conversations around the idea of racial justice and specifically on the ideas of whiteness. Mm-hmm. I felt like that was the major focus. Yeah. It was for sure. White supremacy, whiteness, yeah. Yeah, and like what it actually means to be white historically mm-hmm. and uh, what it means for white people and people of color currently. Uh, so that's that's why we decided to record today as a little context mm-hmm. for the listeners. Well, and I feel like we sh- you and I should or we should talk about like why that even happened. Like yeah. what, what both of us were responding to. Yeah, so I mean like not to interview your interview. No, but no, no. But <laughs> so do it. Get, get deep. You know, police violence against black communities has been something that's been around for a long time. And but in the last year or so yeah two years 2014 is like Mm -hmm. really when more instances started coming up um like especially in social media and like the american uh intellect people started to think and talk about it more and i opened the gym in 2014 with the intention of building a place that is safe for and inclusive for all communities Specifically, communities that don't feel very welcome in fitness environments now. So it, I guess, it's always been on my mind. Yeah. But um, you know, like with the shootings nationwide, and specifically with Philando Castile here in Minnesota, it just started to feel really urgent. Like, what the hell do I do to make sure that the business also, like, ver- you know outwardly represents that idea not just passively mm-hmm. um so we started talking about yeah well i think it was after the after the philando castile killing yeah and i you know and i think f- for me i'd been involved in activism for a long time around police brutality police brutality in minnesota and you know that was a really that was a really hard day for obviously black folks people of color other types of communities and i was just like i just need to work out because i'm losing my mind 
and all my friends are losing their minds and we just don't know what to do because mm. we're so tired and i remember hannah just kind of like approached me after class and was like oh my god what do we do and i was like hannah like let's that not do not that right now that's what i remember that's how it I felt said, how are you doing? <laughs> okay all right you sounds good were not doing that well. no i was not doing that well normally you say a lot of things to me in class <laughs> And we talked about that for a little while. We talked about it for a while. And, and then I said, like, where my struggle was coming in was mm-hmm. that I was feeling like I wanted to do something as a gym, that people were coming to me yeah, and asking yeah, what yeah, I should yeah. do. And that's kind of, like, how we started this combo. And I just had did a training with Autumn Brown at yeah. work, and that was really powerful for the POC on our staff as well as the white folks, I imagine. But for us, it was really amazing to have her help us navigate what whiteness is and how we operate within it, right? And it was it was just – it meant a lot to me, and it meant a lot to the – the four or five of us that I work with that are POC. And and we also like talked about like how this can't be about like, where do I donate money? Like, yeah, 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 exactly. Cause it would be easy for us to just throw a fundraiser workout yeah. and throw a bunch of money at BLM and hope for the best, but like, which we should do anyway, but yeah, like it didn't feel authentic. It wasn't satisfying enough. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so that's where we came up with the idea of, well, I was like, yo, this trainer's amazing. We should we should bring her in. And Yeah, and I'd been seeking a trainer. What's, what was crazy is that like, right after that happened, I contacted a few different organizations that do trainings, and they mm-hmm. were all like, no, like we don't have time. They said that? We're so stretched thin. Yeah, like mm-hmm. some people said we're stretched too thin. Like everybody wants this right now, which I was like, okay, that's great that yeah. everybody wants it. Uh, it's sad that you're so overworked, mm-hmm. you know? And then I got a couple people saying like, "No, I'm not. We're not interested in working with white groups right now." Like, mm. uh, so when I talked to Autumn, it seemed like the perfect fit. Because there's like, you know, when I was reaching out, you can't always tell just from like a website right, what the sure. goal of the organization is. When when like the names all seem the same, it's like, oh, all the buzzwords. Yeah, are there. exactly. Uh, all the buzzwords are there. Um, like anti-oppression training and racial justice work and. Uh, diversity and inclusive cultural competency yeah exactly all that crud they couldn't tell like what the organization's intentions were so some of them got back to me and they just said like our focus right now is on being on the ground and like doing the work at the protests and stuff like that yeah and we don't have time to like do uh the type of thing you're asking for and which seemed fair to me but just was a hard thing i'm like where is everybody who i need to help i can't do this on my own well, and, and, and I yeah, you introduced me to Autumn. Yeah, and I had, had had a really bad experience in an organization that centered cultural competency as the way they approach race. Yeah. And like, and that was always something that annoyed the shit out of me. But like having Autumn do her training and like, and also like manage a space that was like mixed race. And I'd never been in that kind of like dynamic where she was like talking to the white folks, but like not protecting, but making sure that we were feeling lifted and like comfortable. And then just the way she just worked it was yeah. just amazing yeah it was pretty yeah. magical yeah i just i never felt that way i never felt that good in a space that was mm. bringing up so much tension and it was nice so i was like okay i don't want somebody that does cultural competency that's ridiculous i want yeah autumn the center white supremacy in the conversation yeah i will say like when i was a teacher every like every single training we did was about yeah. cultural competency and yeah. diversity and inclusiveness like those specific frameworks were yeah. used, are, are used in schools. That's like what they use. And only after experiencing last night 
was I able to think about those things and be like, wow, that really was not effective what yeah. we did. Or were more harmful in some ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like they basically threw us in a room with the other teachers who were from a variety of backgrounds. Um, like lots of white and POC people working all across the different parts of the school and just putting us at a table and being like, so here are five questions of discussion. You're like, well, we don't know each other. None of us want to get fired. Yeah. <laughs> right. Honesty is not like part of this game right now. Right, it's like right, just right, get through right, the right. day because you have to go lesson plan tonight. Yeah. And you got to satisfy what the admin wants you to do, which is not very effective. So that that was my historical experience with those things. And the only other thing that I've experienced as like a purposeful built conversation within an institution was at McAllister. Mm. There was a party that was thrown that was like um I can't even remember now. It was something like it like some some dress up party that a sport did um at Hamlin mm-hmm. the school nearby us and it was like somebody came with blackface on to the mm. party. Damn. And what year is this? Like two thousand you you, uh, you both graduated this on the same yeah. time, yeah. Yeah, this was like two thousand five or two thousand six. Yeah. yeah. And I wish I could remember now exactly what happened, but it was like they had had a party that was specifically called something that would imply mm. and I can't even remember what it was. It was um, like there was like a dress like a farm worker party at my undergrad. Not not my like undergrad specifically, dress like a farm worker party uh, for huh. Cesar Chavez Day. Yeah. And we were uh, just like, What? This was even more I feel like it was, it was like worse than that. It I feel I almost want to say it was like uh you know, it's like pimps and hoes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. That's I think it was not like, uncommon for college communities. Yeah, too. but I don't think it was like that. I it's think it was like more than that. M- like master and subject or something. Like plantation like, stuff. Like I, I, d- I d- damn. I don't want to misquote it, but <laughs> it was it was like sh- we were like, what the fuck is this? And we got an email about it. it. Happened over winter break. We got an email about it. Like this happened at Hamlin. There were some McAllister students in attendance, um, and. We're going to have, like, they shut down the school for a day, and we addressed it. And I remember that feeling like the way that they organized it was effective because we all were, like, similar age. You know, we're all same age. We're in the same environment and share at least some common experience of being at school together. Mm. Especially that type of private school that curates their student population a little more than, like, a big state school or something. Yeah. And, uh... So we had the, this like full day of r- discussion wow. and things around race and around gender and mm. like what it means to mock somebody. And that was my only other experience with anything like this. Mm. Well, and I think and I think for m- for me, it was like we have these experiences and conversations with other people of color. So to be able to the way Autumn is able to bring our conversation into a white space but also challenge that white space to be responsive to our conversation as we're having it. And then at certain points, just kick out all the white people. She would just do that. Mm. And we were, and like the four of us, were, the five of us were just like, you can just do that. You can just tell them to leave and we, we can do that on a regular basis when we're annoyed with people at work or we're struggling with something at work that's related to race. Wow. Yeah, she seemed to handle um, all of that at once and I was like how is she doing this (laughs) because I never felt 
uh, like a bad person last night. Like okay, good. During, mm-hmm. it, it always felt like she was like, this exploration time is important for you. And also, it's good that you're not putting it on the people of color in the room. Like, don't yeah. ask them to explain it. Right. But be okay with, like, not understanding it yourself. Yeah. Right. And, and that, that tension is what I think is the central thesis for us is how do we keep people in that tension and not wanting to control it or not wanting to silence it because tension feels uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and she made it feel not uncomfortable. Yeah. She, it made it feel welcome. Like, Definitely. This is tense and hard and scary and sad and painful for everyone in the room. So, you know, how do we navigate it? Just, like, embrace it. And I, I really appreciated it her perspective on that definitely and she kept it i think very much in the present moment too like mm-hmm. she would have us take a few breaks take deep breaths yeah right because um, a lot of us were reflecting on old memories or first memories of this type of tension and um yeah her ability to navigate through everyone's experience was spectacular yeah specifically one of the activities that she had us do was um talk to each other like everyone paired up in the room and made a little like life map of their earliest memories of race, specifically memories where they had a a moment where they understood their own race and, uh, and then moments where they understood that other, like other people's racial experiences, like within the first, you know, few years of our lives. And then we shared that with each other. And I, I thought that was really powerful because we ended up generating like a list of experiences that she then, like, two hours later was like, and these things that you identified like, are the factors of white supremacy. Yep. These are all things that represent white, white supremacy. And, mm-hmm. um, I don't know. I, well, it was very effective the way she, that, that it, she did it. But it also was really effective to say, like, oh, these experiences that we have, like, me only having white dolls mm-hmm. when I was growing up, mm. like, that's an element of white supremacy yep. is access. Well, it, and I think what, sh- what that does too is it, it is helps explain how ingrained this is. This isn't yeah. just yeah. about like what you donate to or like how you talk to the, your black neighbor. This is like about the things that you learned deep into like your childhood and how you started. And I think, and I think in general too, like what living, I mean, living, in, I haven't only, I've only lived here about for about three and a half years. And it's also just been a, it's been an education in whiteness for me because I grew up in a mostly segregated Mexican community in Los Angeles and but i also but i also think that there's an opportunity for uh, myself as a person of color to examine my relationship to whiteness in specifically in guatemala when i would go and hang out with these indigenous communities that are much shorter much darker than me and they perceiving me as being white and how complicated that was for me having like a fairly rigid identity for myself as chicano and thinking and framing that within u.s race politics but realizing that for other societies and for those societies, I'm white, and also I've internalized internalized a lot of whiteness in having gone to a small private school or living out here and having to navigate and operate successfully in this largely white environment. You know, so I and think really segregated environment. Yeah, yeah, super segregated, and the way in which a lot of Latinos here don't really see me as Mexican because I sound differently or I'm just bigger than them. Like aesthetically, I just look different, mm-hmm. and so that's, there's a challenge there too that. That some of the tools that that Autumn provided for me and for us was really important for me to like think about what the, how that works. Yeah. Yes. P- some people brought that up last night, um, too. Was like feeling like they, uh, was like some of the people in the co- of color in the room were saying like they didn't feel like they were living up to the expectations of the white community or 
their own community, like mm-hmm. their family mm-hmm. community, mm-hmm. in that same way that you mentioned. So, um, but but whiteness. I mean, that's the point, right? Whiteness. Yeah. This this object of whiteness impacts all of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and we all we all at some level capitulate to it or um, enable it or or what have you, right? It's a project that we all have to engage in. Some of us are closer to that, you know, like a CEO of, of U.S. Bank Corp. or whatever is like a stronger actor in this like process of domination. Yeah. Right. But we all are engaged in it in some way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think um, like what was so effective about the conversation we had last night, and Lucia, you can tell me if you feel the same way. Is mm-hmm. like I felt like I was able to, uh, because we analyzed our own like historical experiences and we looked at how the label of whiteness like has affected everybody including ourselves like including white people mm-hmm. it I felt like I could pass through the guilt much quicker that phase that I feel like a lot of white allies are stuck in which is like I just feel guilty I'm guilty yeah. I'm bad I'm my so you know my family is bad like the people I know are bad I felt like we were able I was able to move through and pass that feeling um, because like her she gave us a, a historical perspective on how all of our own cultural, uh, you know, histories were wiped out to just become white. Mm. And then, you know, we, like, also as white people are trying to attain the ultimate version of whiteness. And it made me see, like, oh, well, this isn't a fucking guilt thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is, like, uh, think something I can also dismantle. And it made me feel like I could be active instead of instead of passive yeah we're all surviving we're all surviving whiteness if we choose to like or not if we choose to but like as we have to as we as we as we engage in conversations we're surviving whiteness right right? but if we're not engaging these conversations we're victims to it and it gets a lot more complicated Mm -hmm. yeah i don't know if you had that same experience i did for sure i think it gave it gave so much more context and at least from where i was coming from there was no dialogue about any of this stuff growing up Mm-hmm. And then just feeling like, okay, no dialogue, so that means I should feel guilty because of these things that I'm discovering on my own but can't have a conversation around. Mm. So having that, even, you know, just three hours last night, it was, yeah, it was hugely powerful and really helped reframe um, guilt and how that guilt has changed and morphed and grown and shifted over the last however many years. Yeah, we had three days of autumn. I think it was three at least two. I can't, I can't remember exactly. So we were all just like, ah! <laughs> like, oh my God! <laughs> oh my God, I can't. Uh, like all of your pieces of identity are just like on the floor. <laughs> you have to pick them up yeah. and put them back. Like, yeah. okay, all right, little little things. <laughs> but I remember I remember when we did our training, so everyone did this game. The, the, the thing that she started us with was like your name and where, where does it come from, right? Mm-hmm. And, and like all the white people were like, oh, I don't, I don't know. My name's David. I don't know. And then like all of us people of color, we had these dramatic stories behind our yeah. names. Yeah. And I was explaining that, like, my name is often the first place I experience bigotry because I say it in Spanish and people are confused, don't know what to do with it, are unsure, don't want to repeat it, get guilty and weird and don't want to talk to me about how to, ex- to what my nickname is or how to pronounce it or mm-hmm. whatever. Or it'll say that um, I say it in an accent and therefore it's hard to hear. And I'm like, well, Spanish isn't an accent. That's not really, <laughs> really something you can say oh. to me right now. But you know, but that but that set the tone because all the white folks had these generic stories about nothing, you know, and like they their culture was erased, and that was like the first like that was the first introduction into that thinking. Mm. Yeah, and uh, it gives you this like 
feeling of like well I guess I'm just white which means like I don't have any anything to grab onto Mm -hmm. except for just being a white person right you're like what's like what's what's the like the dance that comes with being white? Well, it's shitty and you look shitty doing it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Don't like, be proud what's of the that. music that's white music? It's like shitty and you sound right. shitty singing it. Yeah. Consumerism. Um, I mean, what? That's yeah. what I think about when I think of white culture, right? Yeah. Like yeah. buying shit, you know, whatever. Which gives you this also this feeling of like wanting to reject whiteness, which can come off as uh, confusing and weird because then there's like we kind of talked about this last night, like mm-hmm. the NPR listener. Who's like, I'm rejecting my whiteness. Mm-hmm. Um, but through that, reinforcing a lot of white supremacy ideas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and that's like how, you know, adopting other people's cultural right. experiences has we can come say about. We can say appropriation. Yeah, appropriation. Yeah. I was say like, appropriation. what is that word? <laughs> <laughs> I think about it every day. Uh, <laughs> well, then that's... Well, then that's long, I'm so tired. <laughs> that's right, buddy. Well, that's what's dangerous about like all the white liberals I went to college with yeah. is they're like, oh no, dude, I'm not white. Like it's cool. I'm like, no, we're different. <laughs> yeah. Like, you go to like you don't work in the summers. Like you go and do your things and you're drunk all the time. Like I don't can't do that. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, and see, like even that, that's like an experience of whiteness that like I don't have as a white person. I certainly did not have the money that seems right. like mm-hmm. it would allow you to do that. Um, but like I don't feel like I could necessarily embrace the experience i had as like a lower middle class white person mm. um but now like after last night i do feel like i do feel like i can um i don't know what that looks like and that's going to be like a big time exploration of like what does it mean to actually enjoy my own family history and like the culture that they came from and like how does that what does that look like without being scared and wanting to push it away mm. and also without making it something that's an elitist or like a uh, racist thing mm-hmm. to do. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's a big question that opened up in my mind last <laughs> night that I'm looking forward to like, I don't know, diving into. Yeah. How, what's, what's, I guess, what's going to be, have you thought about like what that space looks like for you in terms of like how to digest that or how to dive into it as you say? Uh, no. I mean, the right now I feel like my brain is like a nebulous, oh, <laughs> blob of like (laughs) whoa there's a whole part of me that i have not been able to explore but because of my own fear that my family has purposely pushed away Mm. like last night i mentioned this like my grandparents my my whole family is dutch like i'm a hundred percent dutch that's something that i don't like look into or be interested i'm not interested in because it feels like well it's just white but and some of the most violent colonizers in the americas too yes Mm. and just, it, yes, just a little exactly. fun fact. No, it's not. I know. I, right. I, I had to teach um, world history yeah. when, for my practicum, and I specifically taught the colonization of Africa. Yeah. And I was like, wow, this shit is crazy. <laughs> yeah, Dutch are awful in that, in yes, that context, awful. right? Yes, um, So it's like, but no, understanding that would be is really important to me, and I want to know more about that yeah. and how that led to, like, how my family got here and what it looked like when we arrived here Mm. and what it's looked like for my family to reject that part of our culture like to get rid of the language completely Mm. and to get rid of traditions and like why they did that I don't know what it will take like definitely speaking to the people I'm related to Mm. (laughs) which I haven't done in a long time (laughs) that part it was part of it too is if we know not who we are then we get as an opportunity to be taken advantage of by systems of oppression that 
will tell us that you may not know who you are, but if you buy these things, then you will find out who you are, mm-hmm. right? You can craft an identity out of things you purchase or powerful things that you attach to, mm-hmm. you know? And that's, and I think for, like in Guatemala, a lot of a lot of what the indigenous folks talk about is that their culture is their resistance because their, their culture offers them an opportunity to maintain some distance from this like genocidal 1980s state, you know? And in, and in that context, people were being killed for looking indigenous by the way they they spoke their hair their clothes and so maintaining that was resistance to this these massacres that were happening everywhere even though maintaining it also meant they were a target of massacres mm-hmm. right. yeah yeah so uh, that's where I'm at <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> the other thing that uh, I came up last night and we talked about it in the uh, training but like specifically hit like hit me and my thought process was um I realized like that a lot of my identity has been wrapped up in the like white savior narrative Mm -hmm. because both my parents are social workers Mm -hmm. and like Madison is I'm from Madison is a very also a very neighborhood segregated community but um like overall numbers wise there's a wide array array of types of people that live there um, and there's like a large black community and a large um, Mexican community and a large Hmong community, but we all live in like very separate mm. pockets of the city. Mm. But we all went to the same high school, and just like didn't talk. But my parents worked in the Department of Corrections and um, Health and Human Services, specifically child services. So they were working in those communities in roles of like fixer mm-hmm. and I just like r- last night I was like God it uh, went right into me yeah that went right into like how I've always done things from there on out and that's why that's why yeah it was so important to not just be f- stuck in this like where do I give money to but like how do I examine my relationship to whiteness how do I examine my relationship to the thing that's causing these killings like that like I mean, you, and, you and I have been in this dialogue for like a year yeah. just about like how to deal with the complexities of like what this gym is trying to be and where I stand as a person of color in this largely white space and like how do I create how do I be a part of crafting this gym to be something that feels more comfortable for me on a day-to-day basis yeah and part of that what a segue buddy take it yeah yeah part of of that has been like how do I as a white person say I'm you know actively creating a space that is designed to be a welcoming environment for everybody people of color included without just being like i'm a white person like but trust me Mm. i'll make it okay (laughs) uh yeah so that's last night like we made like a pledge at the end of the night (laughs) of things we wanted to like (laughs) an intention that we wanted to continue to work on and that was the thing that i was really thinking about is like how do i be impactful in the way that i want to be without quieting other voices Mm. and without reinforcing those ideas of white supremacy that we talked about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's my pledge. I don't, so far, it's been 12 hours. <laughs> what have you done so far? Slept really hard. <laughs> I slept really hard. That's good. That's good. In your brain, ready to work. <laughs> I watched an episode of RuPaul's Drag Race and then fell asleep <laughs> on the couch for, for like a, 11 hours. It's an amazingly intersectional show. It's incredible. Oh, I love that that's show. Yeah, so it's great. amazing. It is. Yeah. I've been watching it since the beginning, since yeah. like the mid-2000s or whatever. Yeah. With my brother. So that, I guess, like, would be a great segue. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, I had that segue. 
to, you know, <laughs> like, maybe we can explore together some of the things that exist already in CrossFit and the fitness community in general, yoga, yeah. for sure. Yeah, um, very tense relationship there. Yeah, like, just in the fitness world, what types of, you know, what elements of white supremacy are con- constantly reinforced there that we can, you know, t- attempt to dismantle as one gym in this world? <laughs> you want to talk about that right now? <laughs> Okay, that's big. Let's just that's start massive. with a small let's stuff. Just, uh, let's just dabble into this, right? Let's dabble. Like, like, what's the, like, let's, uh, let's talk about, like, what are the things like, that are, are currently issues? Well, I mean... In fitness. Well, you know, part of part of what podcasting is for me is it's, it's storytelling. And as a historian, I think of it as storytelling, right? Captured people's stories and stringing them together and telling a sequence of stories. And so for me, it was... I mean, I, I went to another gym in Minneapolis that I did not enjoy af- after a year. And that's probably, like, why I started dialoguing with you. And I sent you, like, a million emails. And you were, like, willing to respond to those emails. Your first email was, like, hi. You don't <laughs> know me, but I go to a CrossFit gym. <laughs> and here's why I don't like it. Yeah. Because I think everyone there is racist. Yeah, yeah, And also, like, they don't value me at all. <laughs> and, like, I'm hoping you're not that person is because it, you have this like trans and <laughs> queer focus and i'm hoping race fits into that somewhere yeah. comfortably and i was like dear person <laughs> i am doing my best yet constantly flailing do you want to come in and talk <laughs> yeah right and that and i think fundamentally that's where like i was receptive to like the environment you created because you were willing to talk and i don't and like and that's not to say that like i don't want to like validate in a way that's not useful either it's not like i don't think you have it solved and i don't think you, you and I and whoever else need to keep having these conversations yeah. consistently, right? Yeah. And like where we started and where we've been has also been a journey for both of us in some way or another. But but yeah, but the point is that like if we're not willing to like engage in that dialogue, we're not doing shit, right? We're not building anything useful. And then, but also engage in a dialogue, but also challenge that dialogue with different tools and different yeah. methods too. Yeah. But yeah, so, I mean, that's how I started the gym. I was just like, and then i started noticing things and you and i kept having different conversations about different things so what was the like can you elaborate more on like the feeling or the experience in your gym before that was specifically isolating yeah i'm I'm trying to think about that i mean i would i would hear people say like oh that's so gay when they would like a dude in their 40s right like like, like a grown-ass man saying shit like that. In I'm just Minneapolis? Like, uh, no. Yeah, no. Especially no. in Minneapolis. Uh, yeah. Especially in Minneapolis. Um, so things like that. I, and then, like... And it's, like, it's hard to, like, think about... I think the way we the way we may approach, like, questions about race justice are, like, things that are fundamental to society. So, yeah. like, how does government right. better about race justice? How or is the criminal justice system more responsive to questions of, like, its own illegitimacy as they keep killing black people? But then the f- to, to center that conversation to the place I pay money to work out in was, like, always awkward, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, like, but I, I think I think where it really came to really, really came to a conflict with me was there was an article written a while ago about how white and racist CrossFit is. And the coach who, owner who I had a pretty good relationship with, um, he, he was, like, mentioning that article and, like, defending it and, like, kind of counting all the people that called him in the room and suggesting that well the crossfit just represents the community that it emerges from the box at least and so i can't be taken i can't be held accountable for the lack of uh questions around race in this space and i was like wow what, what am i doing here i gotta go <laughs> yeah and like i stuck it out because i just like working out i didn't know where else to go now i don't even think your gym existed then no no it didn't not till 2014 yeah 
I mean, I mean, if you just look at the structure of CrossFit, you can say that like it's two white guys that run it. Yeah. Two former military. Right. White guys. And libert like a lot of them like I don't remember exactly who, but like a lot of them are libertarians, and there's a lot of that ethic in there yeah. somewhere. Yeah. Yes, I think both. Yeah. I mean, I think Greg Glassman is a libertarian. Right. right. Which is well, he sort of built a libertarian business model, which right. is like do your own thing. No All standards. Which also is dangerous too, physically. It's yeah. very dangerous. Yep. It's like. In some ways, it's great for me because right. I'm like, I don't have to follow any of the standards that they set. Right. Or, and I could completely work against them whenever I want to. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, 100%, it can lead to problems. Yeah. Such as someone who doesn't understand the community they're working in just opening a gym and being like, this right. is, this, I'm the boss. Right. <sighs> well, I've talked to you about this a lot too. Like, I think you, you also have a very, uh, a very good mechanical eye and you have, you're just good at assessing and diagnosing people's movement. And that's not guaranteed at every gym, and that's why right. it's dangerous. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know. Yes, definitely. But, but it's also like if you're going to create an environment where it's okay to uh, look at people who are you're working out with and like judge them in a way that makes your whole gym unsafe. Right. Like that's your responsibility as the owner and the coach to like get those people out of there. You know, or to. Yeah, to yes, to not draw them in yeah. either. Yeah. Yeah, and the and I think the other the other space that I was in was a very much geared towards a high performance athlete too, which is also very yeah. very um, what's the word push away? I don't. It's it's not uh it's not inviting in that way. Yeah. Right. I think it was just like crazy to think about that, and this is this is where I'm most curious is like athletics is not like a white thing. No. But fitness as an industry seems to be more of a white thing. Yep. So it's like, where where is the, what's happening? What's the difference between like playing a sport and becoming an athlete at a high level or even an elite level versus the CrossFit games or fitness, like high level fitness, which is predominantly white. Mm-hmm. Or like even the fitness industry, like yoga studios or... Um, bar studios, Pilates, like Zumba. Zumba. Oh, yeah, right. Well, yeah, and Zumba depends on the place. Yeah. For Zumba, because exactly. that is one of those things you could just like take to a community center. Mm-hmm. So there's actually some really awesome like Zumba classes in the cities that you should check out. Yeah, it doesn't impact the body in the same way, so it's not as dangerous either. Yeah. Also, like it, it's a lot of times it's offered for free or for very right. affordable prices. Right, right, right. Uh, and that's and that's the other part of CrossFit is the price point is very. Um, what the what is the word I'm thinking about? Not receptive, like, I don't know, what's the stupid word I'm thinking about? Approachable, the opposite of approachable. Yeah, elite. Not elite, it's necessarily, but like, yeah, yeah, inaccessible. Thank you, Lucia. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Inaccessible. You have, to, you have to be able to pay pay your rent easily every month, uh, have a budget for fun things. Yeah. And, like, also have a health and wellness budget. Right, because a lot of it, a lot of this experience in CrossFit changes the way you approach your food and steers you into more expensive things, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yes. But even something like yoga, which is something you could practice on your own in the U.S., is like, you know, pretty white dominated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, even though it's a practice that comes from. It's India. Highly, yeah, it's highly appropriated. <laughs> yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, so, I guess that's what our, that's what I'm curious about is like what mechanisms are at play that are making that the case in fitness yeah, yeah. yeah. i think part of it is probably like who has the ability to get a loan to open a business right mm-hmm. absolutely i mean yeah. that's got to be a major piece of it 
I mean, I always thought about like what it would look like if I was living in Los Angeles and started like a, a bilingual CrossFit gym to like in, imbue that accessibility. But then I was like, I can't even, it's a lot of money to start a CrossFit gym because of the equipment that you need and the capital and everything. Like I just wouldn't be able to do it. Yeah. Well, it's actually not as much as you think. If okay. You <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to rent out a budget for you. Thanks, uh, thanks, owner Hannah. But yeah, it's be- yeah. I think CrossFit. What's weird is that when I look at CrossFit, like in theory, it's not inaccessible mm-hmm. to open a gym because it doesn't actually cost that much money. A bank will give you the the amount that you need. I mean, you could open a gym for like ten thousand mm. dollars. Which in the business world isn't that much money. Right. If you wanted it to be fully like stocked and beautiful right. and whatever, it's going to cost more. But um, but even despite that easy access key, there is some other major inhibitors. Like number one, it costs one thousand dollars to get certified. In order to open a gym, you have to be certified. And you before that, you would have had to take CrossFit classes at a CrossFit gym, mm. which might cost you, on average, two hundred dollars a month. Mm. And before that, you would have had someone empowering you to check out a CrossFit gym mm. or some feeling of uh, confidence in walking into a space like that. Right, because it's hard to it's hard to approach a generic CrossFit gym where like everyone is like military, police, really white. Or you don't know because it's or you like just don't know. a fucking old factory building. There are no windows. <laughs> and you right. just see a bunch yeah. of people running out every once in a while, running back in. Looking really pained and uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know... I liked, for example, like, for example, today I drove by this bookstore that's like a sci-fi bookstore, mm-hmm. and I thought to myself, like, wouldn't that be a cool place to go? And I was like, I would never go because I'm a woman, and I would feel mm. like I would be really unsure of myself there, because mm-hmm. I would assume that it's a pretty male-dominated space, specifically by men who would like be annoyed by me for reading science fiction and enjoying mm. it and. You know, is that you think about is that yeah, the messages that are wow? I definitely think about that. Mm. Like, uh, mm. yes, w- I mean, women who are involved in those communities have a really hard go of it. Mm. Like, I have two friends that do magic. The they have a, a podcast called, um, oh my god, what is it called? I'll link to it. Yeah. Like, like it, magic with a stick like a or magic, like Magic the Gathering. Magic the Gathering. Oh wow, people still do that. It's oh, very, yeah. very popular. Oh, they go God. to conventions and stuff. Yeah. And they get I have like no idea. <laughs> they do they're very, you know, highly listened to, followed mm. YouTube stars and they get nonstop harassment online and in person. Mm. So if I'm thinking about it from that perspective, I can imagine that CrossFit gyms look the same way to uh, you know, some women, people of color, people who are overweight. Right. People with disabilities. People that don't have an athletic background. Yeah. yeah. There's there's a lot of barriers you got to break down if you yeah. want to make it. Or just space. buying some clothes, yo. Because like, if you think if you look at like, these ads for like clothes for both men and women, it's just not the person that's selling these clothes. Like anything else that's in commercial culture, that's mm-hmm. that's not what I look like. Yeah. Or yeah. like you know, if you're like, oh, what CrossFitters wear is super shorty shorts and right. a sports bra. Right, well, right. I'm never gonna be able to wear that, no matter what. Even if I look that way, I won't have like confidence or desire. Uh, you feel like, well, I can't come in there. Right, right, right. So, like, yes, structurally dismantling that on the outer face of your business is like hard to know. It's hard to know which things to do, tackle first yeah. and how to tackle each thing. Yeah. Like, what is it that someone sees when they? 
pull up if they're like, I should keep driving, you know? Yeah. I don't know. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I think, so I've, I've enjoyed the space that you've offered me to create some of this, to bring some of this tension out and create an environment that I think is more comfortable for me. But I think, and I, so I have this music series that I do where I bring Latinx musicians from Chicago and Los Angeles along with my buddy Miguel. And when people talk to me about it, they get really excited. They're like, it's really good you do this, blah, blah, blah. And I really have to be clear with folks that like, it's not philanthropy. Like I do this because I need to be comfortable in this crazy state. Like this is a very white state. It's a very white city. And I don't, if I don't create these spaces for myself, I'm gonna lose my mind. You know, where like, a, it's not, and it's not all people of color, but like, it's a, it's a sizable amount of people of color. These musicians that I've known since I was in Los Angeles. So it just feels really good, right? And if other people can also enjoy that space, that means even more to me. But it is fundamentally about trying to create some comfort for myself mm. uh, in the things that I'm passionate about and enjoy. 100%. Like, you know? that's why I opened my own gym. <laughs> I was like, I would like to work around, work out around women. Right. Who, and or dudes who are my, <laughs> who I'm in charge of, <laughs> <laughs> to be perfectly honest. <laughs> Like, I didn't want to work for a man anymore. Mm -hmm. and or people that are receptive to your coaching, uh -huh. right? Which aren't going to be dudes at, at certain levels. Exactly. Yeah. And I had a lot of experiences like that when I was coaching at my old gym was uh, guys sort of like rolling their eyes at me, giving them cues or not listening. Straight up. Yeah. yeah or mm. telling me no. <laughs> Just straight up no. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't have a lot of authority then to get rid of them. Right. Now, if somebody did that, I'd be like, bye-bye. <laughs> you can go. You go. Peace out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or I have the more authority to say, like, you don't get to do that. Right. You're not, you're not the boss here. Right, right, right. Um, so yeah, I can completely understand that. Like, everyone works really hard to make a community of comfort for themselves. Yeah. And it's much harder, as a person of color, to do that in a clearly white-dominated space, mm -hmm. which is like all of Minnesota. <laughs> right, right. But uh, but, and also, um, it's easier for me to create those spaces here than in California too. Why is that? Because like I get to rent a venue in, at Bedlam Lower Town, without anybody pushing back or saying no. Whereas in California, you just you have to fight and deal with the gatekeepers and. Is that just because there are so many, like more people in California? Yeah. In LA. Yeah, and like and there's, uh, there's also like a million, like what six million Mexicans. So like, if I'm just a Mexican dude coming up with this idea, no one's gonna take me seriously. Right, so it's, I have to. So I also leverage the fact that like no one's ever done this type of music series before uh, yeah, okay. to keep doing it, right? And if other people want to do it too, like we're totally excited about it. Yeah. We don't want to. We don't want to siphon it. We don't want to monopolize yeah. it. Yeah, it'd be great if other people did yeah, it. Yeah, it'd be well, awesome. If there's more money out there. Yeah, <laughs> sure. I'd be really excited about that. So like because because the Latino community, the Latinx community here is so new, there's a lot of opportunities for me to create things that are responsive to that community. Can you, um, because you just said it, can you tell? Our listeners, what Latinx means? Like yeah. Why I use that phrase? Yeah, I actually been quoted a lot uh, using that term in different uh, periodicals. So there's been a movement in the last year to so Spanish itself is a very is a binary language, right? It's very gendered, and so there's been a movement among us that are social media producers to use Latinx, and it comes out of a lot of other spaces as well, uh, as a way of of acknowledging or challenging binary systems and and within a queer and and transgender like framework. And so there's been a lot of tension around it from older social media producers and other types of people, but it's been something that old people, old people <laughs> can't do anything. Yeah, yeah. It also just sounds awkward, like as you say it. Like I was raised speaking Spanish, so like I've had to teach myself just to not feel weird about saying it. Yeah, I'll tell you what, it doesn't sound awkward from someone who's not a native speaker. <laughs> it sounds Thanks. very natural. Uh, Crispin Torres spoke at the um, 
Trans Equity Summit that was last week. Who's that? He's uh, a social justice lawyer in mm-hmm. Chicago, and he uh, self-identifies as Latinx. And mm. That was the first time I'd heard it, actually. Mm. Mm. And, uh, like, I talked to someone next to me during, like, right after his speech about it, and it was, like, a, I think it's awesome. Yeah, and I, and I put out a statement about why I was using it in my website, and so yeah. that got yeah. some traffic, and I've been interviewed about my usage of it. Cool. Yeah, no. It's interesting being in, like, a community that you feel like you really identify with and then trying to push back mm-hmm. and feeling like some people are uncomfortable with mm-hmm. it. Like, we're all supposed to be on the same page here. <laughs> Hold on. But that tension is good, right? Yeah. That tension yes. informs, that tension educates, that tension creates a better space for ourselves. Right. 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 And it's like, and you know, anyone, and also, like, if you're just looking at general Latinx or, like, music that or content that's derived from the broader latino community and they're not using latinx it's also a clear indicator of like where their politics come from sure. and what they yeah. stand for especially now yeah. it's right. part of the conversation yeah yeah it's a big part of the conversation now yeah interesting um so where should we go from here in our conversation Nathan? i don't know buddy it's your podcast <laughs> i was also really nervous too because I, I haven't been podcasted yet that much what do you mean well, uh, no one's podcasted me. Oh, you're always interviewing. That's such a I'm always interviewing. Podcasted. Is that is that <laughs> not real? I don't know. It's just like as a verb. <laughs> like okay. I'm podcasting you now. Yeah, you are. Uh, yeah, it's true. Yeah. Okay, all right. Here's something to think about. Like, um, podcaster to podcaster. Yeah, uh, and I think Lucia, you should take the helm on this one. But yeah. In terms of like access to wellness, health. In terms of knowledge, but also like ability to access healthful foods mm. yeah. and um, healthful experiences, uh, like being able to walk outside and walk through the park during a beautiful day or walking to the grocery store and picking up fresh produce. That seems to be a very, I mean, not seems to be, it is a very geography-based type of racism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. That is not a good segue, Hannah. Hannah. I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, it's such a huge that's a huge like huge subject. Web to this un- is my yeah. complicated thing that has no answer. Yeah. Take it over, Lucia. I mean <laughs> Bye. I'll just go home now. So what I think about from more of a personal standpoint, because there's so much dialogue that could be had around like food deserts and yeah, yeah geography, all of that. For me, having this role of speaking about nutrition what i've been reflecting a lot about especially because of last night but even before that thinking about like talking about food talking about recipes talking about healthful food and how to approach that Mm -hmm. and like having group nutrition classes where there's dietary challenges where we're being specific about foods that are coming in coming out and how that is informed by my culture and how the greater food blogger realm, a lot of white ladies, mm-hmm. so a lot of young white ladies I mean, talking about healthy that. foods that uh, make your skin glow. Don't. It's, it's gnarly. Get that pretty baby <laughs> body back. Is that what that says? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Um. yeah. Get a really great body before a baby. Then you better go find your someone to go make a baby with and then get your body back and do it while you're eating and drinking a lot of kale. And then be the perfect food mom. Yeah, and have a million followers on Instagram, yeah. and then a lot of repinned Pinterest pins of your recipes. It's a it's a really weird space that's been created in the last decade, mm. and to celebrate stay like stay at home white ladies. Yeah, seems like specifically right. 
right. the disposable income to pursue these things. Mm-hmm. Well, and the support, yeah, the support and lots of, of opinions, lots, of, lots opinions. of opinions, and the support of often, I would think, if they if they are married or partnered, the support of a different income so they can be doing their own right, thing right, where right. they have spare time, right. and then coding it in a painting it a lovely color and tying a bow on it and saying this is attainable to everyone or this is what people could or should be striving for that's something that i think a lot about and i i don't have answers but it's something that when i'm running my dietary challenges that's based in okay how are foods feeling in your body mm-hmm. it's not about how beautiful that dish is it's not about what culture that dish that you're making whether it reflects any of that it's about the breakdown of nutrients in your body yeah. trying to separate that from some other things but it's it's a weird weird thing to be trying to figure out well I, th- I think the two things that come up for me are are the appropriation of quinoa as like a, a big thing in like white upper middle class communities and how that has created a lot of problems in i think it's peru or bolivia that, uh, <laughs> <laughs> access to quinoa and like access to a staple of their diet right yeah. and then also like like for us like if you're second generation Mexican, you're less likely to eat things that are healthier for you, like lentils and nopales and like all the things that when you're being raised in the United States are associated with poverty, are associated with, with um, being less than or like as you're trying to attain whiteness by becoming middle class, you're yep. going to start pushing that shit away. Yep. And like cactus is amazing. It's just totally healthy for you. Or yeah, like the use is. of flour tortillas, like that stuff's awful. Yeah in reality and like there's a lot of obesity in the southwest along the border because flour tortillas aren't something that's native to our diets right. aren't things that kept kept us healthy throughout like fucking eons right right yeah moving away from that traditional diet losing yeah. losing dialogue about what traditional foods are or why why they were traditional why it's okay to keep that right yeah it's when you come to minnesota and it's all really bland midwestern food yes it is <laughs> yes it is <laughs> I don't know I just used to eat a lot of cactus because my f- we had a cactus plant in our backyard growing up. It's so good. It's yeah. so good for you. It's delicious. Yeah, it's and amazing. it's really good for you. Very nutrient dense. Right, but you you know you're like you're 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 starting to walk into whiteness, and so it's like, mm-hmm. okay, I'm not gonna bring a plate of food that looks weird to white people. So mm-hmm. like, okay, let's get a hamburger, right? Because I don't want to stick out, and I want to deal with like the 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 tension of like holding on to the things that like are best for me yeah and i yeah. think that starts really early in school too yep. you know absolutely if you're bringing a packed lunch and everybody else has a sandwich and like you bring something really s- different yeah even if kids don't say anything it still feels like it's not okay you feel to it you yeah. feel it yeah, yeah. i li- i remember my <laughs> just for like i had a taste of it one day hmm. my mom made me a pickled egg sandwich <laughs> which really? is something my family Ooh. loves wow and i mean i'm into that yeah yeah pickled eggs <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like a big wisconsin we, thing we pick right a lot now. of things in mexican culture like yeah. we pickle pig feet we pickle cactus like i love yeah. pickled pig's feet do you yeah. really I do how have we not talked about this <laughs> i don't know they're so good oh i'm gonna get some yeah okay. we're gonna eat I also it also like pickled cactus do you like with that tapatio on it i don't know we're gonna find out. Find we're out. gonna find out. <laughs> uh, we're gonna have a weird banquet in the office. Yeah, okay. It's just like stinky <laughs> ass banquet. Yes. I'll bring S- sardines and pickled herrings. <laughs> yes. So anyway, I brought a pickled egg sandwich to school, and like nobody would sit by me <laughs> because it smelled weird it and really it looked bad, weird. Yeah. It was on rye bread, so everyone was like, "What the hell is that brown bread?" And, uh, and they didn't say what the hell probably because we we're like in third grade. But I told my mom like I didn't want her to pack my lunches like. anymore. 
Oh, straight up. Yeah. And yeah. Now that creates tension with your family. That's mm-hmm. that's how erasure yep. begins, yeah. right? And that's like, so. I mean, that was like, it was a, still a sandwich. It just was a stinky one. Yeah. So I can't imagine what happens if you bring something that no one's ever seen. Right. Like you bring Korean food to school. Good luck. You know, that's going to be a really hard thing to navigate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we were all Mexican, but, like, I remember my high school girlfriend, she was Puerto Rican and Mexican, and so she brought plantains once, and everyone just freaked out because mm. plantains aren't really native to right. Mexican diet. I mean, they were weird-smelling and slimy, and just there was no – and I'd never seen it either. I was yeah. It was for me, and it was thoughtful. I was just like, I don't – what is this? I don't know what to do here. Yeah. You know? Oh, yum. Yeah, <laughs> it's great, babe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you can see how it, like, happens in schools really subtly but like over a long period of time just disconnects the kid yeah. from their culture at home and then yeah. well, everyone's trying to attain this certain level of like white bread <laughs> literally yeah, yeah. white literally. bread <laughs> yeah yeah deli deli meats salty yeah. deli meats yeah like the kids who got lunchables yeah i was like mom can we have lunchables she was like no way they're like a dollar fifty a, a right. thing mm-hmm. she's like no way we can't afford that you can have one a month and so, like, Lunchable Day, I was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Or even, yeah. like, this trading that people engage in, like, the... Yep. like the Oreo packs yeah. and stuff like or, that. Or, like, we were all, like, basically, like, the one middle-class Latino that was around us, we were trying to always get his cookie, because we just were like, oh, man, like, yeah. I don't know what that flavor is, I want that. Right, the know? novelty. Yeah. He was just, like, the, the philanthropic cookie guy. Yeah. There's a, there's a really good book that I'm reading right now called Salt, Sugar, and Fat. And they talk all about the marketing and industry yeah, of each of those three items. And they talk, they have a big section about Lunchables and how they became so, I mean, marketed towards kids. Right. It's not for the parents. You know, parents are like, oh, good, I really need to give my kid a Ritz cracker. Like, yeah, I really can't a great my lunch. kid to eat this, like, wet meat. Yeah, that's mostly packaging. And it's like this it's <laughs> been in a box for two months or whatever. At least. At yeah. least. But it's 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 incredible, the, the marketing that went into it and the thought and how successful they were at marketing towards kids. Yeah. But yeah. That, and, and that being a mechanism by which you start introducing whiteness, right? Yeah, exactly. You start codifying it. Two so kids. Yeah. Two kids. Right it's, away. Like, it's, hey, kids. It's gnarly. Yeah. Yeah. Very young. Like, you want to be uniform, right? And mm-hmm. for the answer for a kid is like, yes. Yes. Yes, I do. Oh, yeah. And my, and my, I mean, my parents growing up didn't speak English and just weren't really part of, like, white society because of the segregation in Los Angeles. So they, it wasn't even, like, an option. We couldn't afford anything anyway. So it was just, it wasn't like that level of colonization wasn't happening for us that deeply that soon, but mm-hmm. like it certainly started happening later. They were yeah. just like, no se get lunchable here. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, bye. Have another burrito. Okay, mom. Thanks. Oh, more cactus. Yay. <laughs> you know? But then you, you know, you start talking to your other friends and nobody else eats cactus and everyone else mm-hmm. is buying into whiteness and you're just like, oh shit. Oh my God. Yeah. What's a ham sandwich? schools where there's, you know, predominantly white schools where there's maybe like 10% of the kids are you know, kids of color from lots of different communi- communities, you can imagine how quickly oh, yeah. they Way just get whitewashed, you yeah. know, and erased. Like, I, just disappears. I didn't have bacon until I was, like, 16. I just didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. Like, there's words, in sp- there's words, uh, there's pieces of meat that I don't know what they are in English because I just never said them in English. <laughs> sure. Right. Yeah. Like, pork chop, I didn't know wh- what that was until tw- I was 22, and I was like, oh, that's a chuleta. Oh, okay. Mystery over. <laughs> The, Sim- the Simpsons make sense now. That yeah. was a pork chop. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know what it was. I had no idea. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, that's like what we ate like every Saturday. Really? We have my family. It was the same food every week. Yeah, when I talk to people chops. about when I talk to white folks about their eating, I, just, I get really shocked. You know, especially here, like, what what's 
a casserole. Like, I didn't know what that was really until I moved here. Yeah, we never yeah. really had that growing up either. No. Casserole it just sounds was really gross. Like, like hot party. dish. Hot dish. Yeah. No. My family Fun always white had... American food. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like super just It's expensive. cheesy and warm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we always had, on Sunday nights, we would have um, sauerkraut with uh, potatoes and Polish sausage. Is that Dutch? It's it sounds more Wisconsin. German. It's it like more German, German. Yeah. yeah. But it's Wisconsin, okay. basically. My parents are from, like, mill, <laughs> basically mill towns they're in Wisconsin along the Fox River Valley. Mm-hmm. So they're all, like, families that have, like, ten kids and mm. make mill money. Mm-hmm. So they are really good at stretching food. Right. And that was, like, one of the main dishes. Yeah, potatoes, sauerkraut's very cheap. Damn, I'm getting hungry. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Polish sausage is, like, the cheapest sausage. Right, right. And right, then you right, just right, basically right. put it into a pot and, like, bake it mm. yeah um so yeah that carried on its tradition i crave it sometimes mm. even though it's pretty plain it's like just yeah i mean refried beans and rice is like staple for my family yeah. and my sister we all just like ah, we want beans and rice yeah because yep. also like it also reminds us of our parents it reminds us of like yeah. mm-hmm. like what dr- what connects us to like our past yep you know it's that one linkage i have yeah. totally very nostalgic too especially the smell Smell yeah. brings you back to memories so I mean, My quickly. parents were horrible cooks, so, like, bad food reminds me of them, too. <laughs> <laughs> so my mom used to make pleasant. this liver and onions <laughs> pate stuff, mm. and the smell of it. Now I, like, really am like, oh, like, my family. But I would, like, leave the house because I was like, I'm going to vomit, Mom. It's so gross. <laughs> but my grandmother, when she was, um, when she was married, she didn't have, a like, a job. She worked as a server sometimes, but... She was Just like odd a, jobs. Yeah, right like right. at home, and she started to make this pate that she sold to restaurants. Oh, wow. She made, like, her own, like, liver, chicken liver pate. I want that. It, it's so good. <laughs> her secret recipe, like, went with her to the grave. So oh. we'll never know exactly, exactly what she mm. put in, but she had, she had a recipe card that she wrote out, and then at the bottom it said secret ingredient. <laughs> <laughs> so my mom... Makes I mean, it sometimes. Can't be that secret. It has to be something. Yeah, something. I mean, I think she's figured it out for the most part. <laughs> yeah, right. But she makes it par- for parties and stuff, and I always like really value it because it's like my strong ass grandma mm. trying to make some family income so they didn't only have to eat tongue every night for dinner. I love tongue. Tongue is. I did too. My Do mom not really likes it too from really eating good. it all Do the time not as a kid. Speak ill. But you tongue. know, but like if you're trying to be like the family next door, like right, mm-hmm. you're trying to be white. Should really embrace that whiteness. Yeah. My dad's like three tongues hanging out in the stockpot aren't really doing it. You know what's interesting about tongue too is that I feel like because it's it's becoming a trendy food. Is it? It's yeah. Gone up in price. Stay away from my tongue. Like it uh. looks like tacos that have lengua in them. I feel like are more popular. Now. I mean, we've always loved that, but like yeah. I didn't realize well, like, you're all catching up. In well, the, uh, <laughs> exactly. Uh. But, but if we're speaking about whiteness and those preferences and marketing and all of right, that right, increasing right, right, driving right. up the price this is the appropriation yeah, yeah. yeah. it's hope they uh, don't hope they don't figure out my fruits man because i don't want to pay more just money don't for that. Say that yeah. Yeah. i'm not i'm not i'm absolutely not but, uh, keep that to myself yeah. man <laughs> Shit. even even avocado is like a, yeah. a popular mm-hmm. ingredient and um like the use of so much anger yeah chi- so like the way anger. that Restaurants will alter their guacamole to be like some certain thing, or yep. make like a guacamole mousse, or uh, something like stop that. It. Yeah. Uh, 
I remember at one point discovering that white folks put mayonnaise in their in their avocado guacamole. What? Yeah. 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 I was like, no. <laughs> really? Yeah, I was so mad. Oh, like if you buy it from a store, that's how it is. No, no, no. People no. like Wait, when they make it at home, they'll put mayonnaise in it to no. thicken it. No, so that's we, so bad. We grew up never doing that. It was very much a very straightforward guac recipe. But like five years ago, I was walking in the grocery store. We heard this kid was like, "Mom, what are you putting in the guac?" She was listing through and was like, "Yeah, totally yeah." Totally sounds like a commercial. Avocado. Yeah, yeah. Avocado, <laughs> onion, cilantro. And of course, mayonnaise. Of course, like, no. Of course. Is that just yeah. a Minnesota thing? No, it's I've it's just white people that in general. Like a Minnesota no, thing. it's white people in general. It's I mean I've, I first encountered the problem in in California. So mm. that is a problem. <laughs> it, is a problem. <laughs> it is. That's not the taste of guac. Also, you ruined it. You just ruined it. Well, it's also the like texture a, must be weird. It's also a shoddy, cheap filler too. Like it's a totally like in my mind just like corporate like just fucking. We could talk about mayonnaise. <sighs> They also love mayonnaise in Venezuela. It was disgusting when I lived there. Really? Yeah. yeah. We've talked about mayonnaise quite a bit on this podcast. Oh, I can't handle it. Yeah. Uh, when when I lived in Nicaragua, they they really love ketchup too. Yeah, that's yeah. a thing for us. Yeah. We eat a lot of ketchup. I mean. But these are things I that like I don't know too. about until I'm in Mexico. Like it's not something that transfers over. And then I go to Mexico and yeah. people put ketchup everywhere, and it's really sugary. It's different than the U.S. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh. Is it even gross. more sugary? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. How is that possible? <laughs> I don't know. Bad and teeth. is it real sugar or is it? These are questions I cannot answer for you, Hannah. I'm okay, sorry. I'm sorry. Look at the bottle. Next time I'm there. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Send me a picture. I will. From the foreign lands of Mexico. Thank yeah. you. Well, I feel like food politics uh, and race is like super. If we just think about water, what's happening yeah. with water around yep. the world? You know, access to things that are basic. Yes. Yeah, or even just, like, the fruits and vegetables that we get here, like bananas, Well, all the – so so Guatemala is a major – avocado is a major crop in Guatemala. What they were telling me, the campesino dudes I knew, is that the ones that we get in the U.S., the Haas avocados, are split with pears. An actual avocado is, like, perfectly, like, spherical and incredible. Yeah. And then also, like, when I went back, they said that, like, they they were talking about how those – they basically killed the entire avocado crop doing – dusting for different mm. plant or different bugs and things so what the mouth doesn't really produce avocado anymore mm. that's a three-year flip yeah. oh wow. it's crazy that's amazing yeah yeah well you know this podcast has taken us on a winding road <laughs> but i'm glad that we're doing it i'm glad we did <laughs> yeah. i i don't know like that we I, I don't know that any of these conversations ever produce answers no and i'm that's not I'm really the point gaining comfort with that yeah, I think that think for me as an ed- as also someone that pursued being an educator and still educates at some level, it's about creating finding comfort and tension and also finding the most provocative questions you can think about to open up ideas and open up opportunities for further dialogue. Yeah, yep. yep. And hopefully, like what people uh, could take away from this from our conversation is just uh, to start to critically analyze the spaces that you're purposely engaging in, like the gym that you're paying to go to and the uh, co-op that you might shop at or the places that you specifically go to reinforce your own health. What, uh, like what makes those space spaces um, specifically racialized? Like where are they in the community that makes them difficult to access or easy to access for you? Like what, what can you contribute to yeah. reduce the amount of like <laughs> white supremacy well. <laughs> that's there? And I think what yesterday in another conversation I had after the Philando Castile killing with a, a white friend of mine was, you know, she was like, well, what do I do? Like, who do I call? And I'm like, well, 
I think you need to examine your relationship to white supremacy. Yeah, and yeah. I think we all need to do it. Some people need to do it more urgently than others. It's, a, it's obviously a continuum, whatever. But that's what you need to do, yeah. in my mind. Right? Yeah. And try to find those tools that help you do it in a way that's not going to be destructive for you as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be this thing where you just sit at home and be like, I can never leave again because I shouldn't engage in the things that I engage in because they are a product of white supremacy. Like, you should continue to engage in the things you're engaging in and ask why, like, what parts of those things that you engage in are a product of white supremacy yeah. and what aren't, mm-hmm. and what can you do to change them? And you might make some choices after that. Yeah. That's yeah. fine. And you might choose to be, you might choose to put your money towards a business that is actively looking at those. Or you might choose, you might change where you go in order to, you know, put your white money elsewhere. Yeah. Or, you know, like, use your privilege and understanding of your privilege to help you make better and more effective choices in your own life, you know? And build better relationships with people around you. Yeah. Yeah. Should we take a big nap after this? <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> anyway, like one hour. Let's see if we can solve the world's problems today. We can't. No. So instead, we're just going to talk. Um, thank yeah. you for joining us. Yeah, it was fun. Thank and you. And I hope that we can continue to have this conversation. And I hope that if you're listening and you have questions, you send those questions to us. Yep. At Solcana Podcast on Twitter. Or you can email us. Do we have an email account? Just email me. Not for the podcast, but you can always go to SilkanaFitness.com, and there are lots of ways to contact any of us who are at the gym. Yep. Um, do you want to give people any way to contact you, or should we just let you ghost yourself out? Um, <laughs> I don't know why you want to contact me, necessarily. That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> if they're interested in learning more about um, the, your uh, like production of music events or, or yeah. your podcast or maybe you just like your encyclopedic knowledge of <laughs> history i didn't think really well about how to plug myself but um the best place is to look at my website at what and there's a facebook page as well and the twitter twitter account and the the soundcloud account is probably the best one just to listen to the conversations okay cool cool, cool. we'll link to those so thanks we buddy keep us somewhere to go yeah. yeah um thanks for joining us on this special episode and we'll see you next week thanks taj for listening to this and editing us and making us sound like we know what we're talking about <laughs> We appreciate you. Taj is like, you know when you go near the window and there's like one slit of sun that's coming in? Mm-hmm. Like, in like, like in you? jail? No, not in jail. <laughs> that's, that's what it's like. There's one slit. There's like a little slit. <laughs> like between the slats of your... Oh, okay. There's like I see. one slice of sun that comes and just like hits you in the perfect spot and makes you feel so warm inside. That's Taj Ruler. That's how she makes you feel. Yeah. Okay. It so is. thanks, Taj. Thank you, Taj. <laughs> Thanks, uh, Taj. Subscribe to us on iTunes, and we'll see you next week. Bye. 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 Sulkanacast is produced by Taj Ruler. Subscribe on iTunes or visit sulkanacast.libsim.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N.com for full episode information. You can also visit our website at sulkanafitness.com to stay up to date on everything health and fitness. Join in on the conversation over on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Sulkana CrossFit. See you there.